Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. This is the second half of our two-part series on diversity in the point-of-care ultrasound community. If you didn't hear part one, you might want to go back and check that out first. Cray, Jay, and I are having a chat with Almaz Desi and Javier Rosario, authors of publications on gender and racial inclusion in ultrasound. Now let's get back into the conversation. Well, I think a lot of our conversation thus far has centered around our community, our colleagues, and how we can make changes in our place of work. But I also just want to bring up some other places that are relevant to point-of-care ultrasound where we may see some concerning discrepancies or or problems that we could hopefully find solutions to. For example, point-of-care ultrasound of our patients in the emergency department or wherever else you might work. Are there differences in who gets point-of-care ultrasounds, who gets offered? point-of-care ultrasounds. We could extend that even further to a lot of our teaching where we are using live models, simulated models. There's a lot that has, at least recently, some more conversation about making sure that this whole conversation applies to those populations as well. Any thoughts on that? I mean, I think a classic one is that's gender-based is cardiac ultrasound in female medical students. Like we know students learn by being ultrasounded and how many people have taught at an ultrasound session where they're like, "Mm, it's cardiac, women can't do it. No, if the expert in cardiac ultrasound is teaching at this session, I want to lay there and hear all the things and understand the techniques. And if I, as a female, can't because of my anatomy and it bothers other people, that's a disadvantage. Kind of caring from that too, like our patients, if we don't understand their culture and look like them and understand their values and think like them and have a background like them, when we're teaching ultrasound, explaining ultrasound, teaching our patients and showing them things, we're going to cause harm whether it's intentional or not. I 100% agree. And I think it translates the same way that we've you know highlighted in both of our papers that gender and race affect the care that is given to patients. Definitely the same way that we saw how bringing back COVID, just because that's what we are having recently, but we saw Black, Hispanics, Indian Americans, and other communities affected differently than the usual white community. So the same thing can be applied to ultrasound. You can quickly see how how there are discrepancies in the care that is given to patients of different race, a different color or gender, uh, just based on, on, on those terms. And definitely uh, we can do better. Yeah, I think that, you know, our papers didn't get deep into that patient impact, but it is a very good question. There is literature out there about how imaging in general, like cross-sectional imaging, things like that, and the radiology literature is not equally provided to different racial ethnic groups. I think of POCUS, my use of it as neutral and equally applied to patients, but that's probably not the case knowing what we know about equity in care or inequity in care. And if POCUS is better for the patient, like we know it reduces CT use, we know it improves length of stay, and we know patients like it and things like that, then as a health equity and quality measure, it's actually really important to examine if we're using this tool equitably across patient populations and with minoritized groups and things like that. So it's not something I, I hear a lot about being studied, but it's certainly a really good question. And as a quality measure, I think it is very important. Yeah, and it would make sense that it's it's similar to some of the other publications on pain medications, for example. That there's probably a very implicit role, uh, implicit biases that many of us have. We don't even realize that we just are not thinking to do a point of care ultrasound on on a certain patient for whatever reason it may be. So yeah, I think that is maybe an area we could investigate. 
the education piece also, I think, is so important. Create was sort of talking about, you know, learning cardiac, this life-saving POCUS skill that we sort of ignore in educational opportunities. I, I have been to a lot of POCUS conferences where cardiac is taught, and I don't remember ever seeing breasts on a PowerPoint on the screen when it's being taught. And certainly most of our standardized patients that we practice on our models or whatever are men and they're usually thin men, right? So there's, you know, body habits is another piece that we're not being trained in, in a way to equitably apply it to our patients because we just don't train on diverse bodies. So I think that part is uh, overlooked a bit as well. And even our simulators until recently, all of our simulators were light skinned whether it be our cardiac simulators, like a full torso, or even just like arms that students are practicing scanning for IVs or or placing IVs. So that's something that I know our College of Medicine has attempted to change. So I think this is probably a pretty heavy topic and a lot of people listening are probably maybe hopefully doing some self-reflection. What can people do going forward? They've listened to this, they've read your articles. How can we, now that we have the awareness, make that seat at the table? And I think, Javi, your paper specifically had some things like step one is like, what are your implicit biases, right? Like just that initial like reflection, which I think is something that's really easy. And perhaps, Mike, we can put in the show notes are just some really easy tests you can go to and just do an initial and implicit bias assessment with yourself and then make sure you're doing implicit bias training with your teams. We probably should be doing that at a national level, I would argue, with our leadership teams. And then institutionally, obviously, recruitment is huge. But once you recruit them in, how do you support and sponsor them? Rather than saying, fix it, like, no, how can we fix us, not you fix us? And then systemically, I think we said before, like mentorship and diversity and representation across the board. I'll add maybe one or two more points. I mean, I think you summarized the big hits really well. Uh, One thing I'll add is that as an individual, I think whenever you're invited to participate in an opportunity, whether it's research or being on the planning committee of a conference or being on a panel, whatever it's going to be to really examine, it's okay to ask who else is involved. And if it doesn't seem like a representative or diverse or a group with parity in terms of gender and other, other demographics, to either turn down the role, recommend someone else, or, you know, just express your concern with that and say, hey, I don't participate in panels. In fact, I don't participate in panels that aren't 50-50 in terms of men and women or other gender groups. So it's okay to say that. And if you're already at the being invited to the table, you do have some power to say that you shouldn't be afraid to question, you know, whoever's organizing it and encourage them to think about it if they haven't before. Another point I'll make is just I think that these two papers focused on, you know, gender and race and ethnicity. And those are obviously hot topics and something we sort of measure easily. But there are a lot of other types of diversity that we don't even dive into at all with these papers. And those should not be ignored in any way, whether it is shuffle orientation or, you know, our colleagues who are from outside the United States or English as second language or, you know, any number of ways that people are diverse and interesting and unique to sort of invite a lot of different perspectives to the table that are not necessarily just about race, ethnicity, and gender. Uh, One way we do this, for example, like in our fellowship recruitment the last couple of years, I've really tried to sort of open the door to identify yourself in another way. So, the standardized applications give people room to talk about their 
to click off their race, ethnicity, and gender, but there's so many other aspects of a human experience and hardships and so forth that people have experienced. So at the end of the recruitment season, we ask our potential applicants to share if there's like any other piece of their identity that they want us to know about that are important in terms of what they bring to work. And if they want to be linked up to other people in our larger community who have experiences similar to them, that we are happy to do that. And hopefully we can do that. So just thinking a little bit more broadly about how we talk about diversity is so, so, so important. I never want to exclude other groups by talking about diversity as such a narrow concept. No, I appreciate that. And I think probably the first step, because it's just, I just feel like as a whole, we're pretty behind in general. And I feel like there's steps we can just like in emergency medicine, there's a difference between boards, how we take boards, you know, like we look at the vital signs first and then we order a test and then we do a thing and then we order another test. That's not really how we practice medicine. The way we practice medicine is we see a patient and we're like, oh, you know, they look sick. And then you order a bunch of stuff. You're getting IVs at the same time you're ordering at the same time you're doing your ultrasound, getting your x-rays. It all happens at the same time. And I definitely think there are areas that we can focus on, but also understanding that we can also focus on other things at the same time, like, you know, gender nonconforming people, like uh, people that are, you know, I don't know, include foreign medical graduates. I don't know if we've even looked at that as far as including them and as a percentage of like the general population into these committees and into journal articles and stuff like that. I agree. It's all about being transparent and highlighting those efforts individually or, or, or as a community. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, creative ways we can go about this. And I think some of the things that we need to start thinking about is how we can how can we make our programs if if it's a if it's directly related to ultrasound or or emergency medicine or medicine overall, how can we, you know, instead of just recruiting people based on their accolades and their grades and, you know, their their step one scores, do we need to be looking at other things rather than than just scores and and the amount of publications that they have at medical school? You know, people that like myself, English is my second language. So a lot of times when I'm speaking, I'm thinking in Spanish. So that's why it might sound a little bit off when I'm trying to get my message out there. Are these specific individuals, are they different because they had to go through more? Did they have to do medical education twice because they did it in a foreign country and then they had to move to the United States and then had to repeat everything because it's not considered relevant, even though it's pretty much probably the same practice. So all those things I think are important and are things that we're looking more at those type of applicants. And we're trying to consider those applicants a little bit more than, than, than before. And we'll have lots of these really excellent ideas that were brought up in these papers. We'll put them in the show notes so you can see the granular details. But I think that one of the things that's come up through our conversation is that you can't view this as just a checklist. It's it's not like you get to a certain point and you can be done with it. I think we keep saying you got to promote a culture of inclusion and that's easy to say, but I think it comes down to both the leadership from the top down, believing in it and changing, and then individuals, however you can in anything you interact with, whether it be recruitment or your administrative roles, teaching, the research that you do, any groups, just trying to ensure that from an individual point, there's diversity as well. Any other thoughts before we kind of bring this to a close? I guess I said like one minor little thing is one of the things that I, you know, whenever you arrive at a new place, you, I think that you tend to want to be the same that everyone else is there. And 
that's the other thing that I try to, at least with like my residents and my faculty is try to encourage the residents to continue to do whatever weird stuff they already do. Like, I don't know, edit videos or do backflips on their mountain bikes. Like make sure that we encourage those weird things things to this individual's resident that I have, that's the thing that they find one of the things that they find joy in and making sure to encouraging all of that as well would, would also help. I think that's so key and so important, Jay, because I think that also makes our patients feel that they can be themselves and then they can be honest with us and then we can provide them better care. It's not an us, them, it's a we. And I think we need to create a culture in POCUS and in medicine where the we is accepted and the we is much prettier. Like if I just drew a picture with a blue crayon, it'd be a really boring, other ugly picture. But if you get that 128 pack crayon box, like you're going to make a masterpiece. And then we really have to honor that, that we're missing colors in the painting and the medicine painting will be so much prettier and so much better if we start putting all the colors on the page. I love that. that I love good. that. Especially as a pediatrician, that really spoke to me, the, the crayons. That is a beautiful thought for the future. So I just want to encourage all of our listeners to read through these articles and then, like Craig said earlier, really reflect on your your own practice and think, maybe identify some some next steps. So thanks so much to our guests for being here. Javi, Almaz, I really appreciate your perspectives and and thank you to to you individually and your author groups for these articles for bringing a, a louder voice to these issues. Thank you so much for having me and Almaz here. I think it's important that we keep uh, having this conversation and this is really the way that we can promote change. The ultrasound community has always been innovative and I think we are pretty much the leaders on this, on driving this change as well. I appreciate uh, all of you for having us here today. Thank you so much for having us. I echo everything Javi said. I love, love talking about this and I could talk about it all day and I love the different directions it, it can go in depending on who you're talking to. So I always welcome the conversation. I welcome the criticism. I welcome the questions and yeah, we'll keep doing it. That sounds like a great plan. So feel free to reach out to any of us through social media, email, and you can always go to our website, ultrasoundgel.org. Leave some comments there, which we will always reply to. So thanks for listening to this episode and I hope you enjoyed it and we'll go out and make some changes. Talk to you later. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Ultrasound Gel Podcast.